morning we begin a new series on sanctification. You just sang that word several times. Yea, justified, then yea, sanctified. And sometimes these are just really big words that can be intimidating at times. But in that word, it really brings up a question. And that question is this. What gives Christians the power to lead a new life and respond to Paul's exhortation in Romans 6.13 that we no longer allow sin to reign over us. Here's my goal this morning. For every six-year-old, for every 96-year-old, before we walk out those doors, I want us to all have an understanding of how the word sanctify, right, sanctified, but how the verb sanctify is used in Scripture. What did the Holy Spirit mean when He chose that word and then breathed out God's word through human authors and they use it throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament? Number two, making a clear distinction, because this is where the confusion is, between a definition and a distinction between definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. That's where most of the confusion uh, is created, between a lack of understanding those two terms. And then third, embracing and rejoicing in our union with Christ, that we have been delivered from sin's power. And that's going to help us answer another question. Do we live this life now as Christians to earn favor with God? Or do we live out from favor with God? Are we here this morning to gain God's favor as as kind of a divine genie? Or are we here in response to His grace out of gratitude, compelled by His grace to ascribe worth to His name together? And Christians can live under either of those. Answers to questions about sanctification remind me of a poem I was introduced to in a philosophy of education class. John Godfrey Sachs's poem, The Blind Men and the Elephant. I'm not going to read the whole poem, but basically you have six men from Indostan, and they're all blind, and they come up, and they are told to identify the object in front of them. Of course, it's an elephant. And just a snapshot of this poem, the first approached the elephant, felt his broad and sturdy side, and he concluded, it is very like a wall. And that part of the elephant is like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, concluded it is very like a spear. The third took the squirming trunk within his hands, concluded it is very like a snake. The fourth reached out and felt about the knee and said, it is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, it is very like a fan. Which does not rhyme with ear, but if you had the whole poem, you know, you would follow the flow. The sixth, seizing on the swinging tail, concluded, it is very like a rope. Now the poem ends this way. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, Though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. And that really does explain in some ways 
the discussions that surround the doctrine of sanctification. We try to define the parts or a few parts and we miss the whole and that launches then believers into a frustrating, confusing walk in this life. I've listed four reasons for why there's a, an, a growing awareness of this doctrine. There's a lot more. These are the four that I think touch our assembly the most. The first is there is a growing dissatisfaction with the shallowness of Christian subcultures, both traditional and cutting-edge eclectic. We realize that a subculture, a Christian subculture, does not have the power in itself, in its form, without substance, to nurture holiness. Right? And I think you've sensed some of that frustration, and I've sensed some of that frustration. We're going to look at that at Colossians 2 during this series, and it will, it will help address that frustration. There is a growing disillusionment when popular preachers and seminar speakers and writers offer what they call the key to victorious Christian living. If you just attend that seminar or apply this one truth or use this program, I like what Douglas Moo wrote, there is no single key. Rather, there are many keys, many theological truths and practical considerations that can assist us to live in ways pleasing to the God who has redeemed us. Matter of fact, another author said, the key in understanding sanctification is to stop looking for a key and to allow God's entire word to lead and shape us and direct us. Number three, there's a growing desire to know God genuinely and experientially. That really is connected with the first one. We don't want to just go through the form. We don't want to just go through the motions. We want to know what Paul said in Philippians 3. Listen to what he says. I want to know Christ. Not know about Him. Not have all the facts down. Not the, oh, yeah, I've read that book about God. Or I've read through the Bible every year for the last 20 years. A good thing, but again, it can become a husk if you don't really know God. And there's a growing desire to know Him genuinely. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection well, how do we know that? And participation in his sufferings. That's going to explain right away why some of you came in here this morning and you are in a long period of suffering. And it all comes back to this doctrine we call sanctification. And it all comes back to a very real path on which we know God experientially. See, we've been lied to. We've been told that if we're walking right with God, if we rub that side of the genie lamp, then we're going to have incredible blessings overflow and we will have the happiest lives of all people. Are you surprised to find out that the Scripture does not promise you that? That I may know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection. Well, how will you know that part of being in union with Him? Participation in his sufferings. And what does that do? Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Listen to what Paul says. Not that I have already obtained all this 
or have already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Kenneth Boa, in his book, Conformed to His Image, writes, and I believe this is applicable to all believers who have had the Bible their entire lives, who have come into churches their entire lives, he writes this, The occupational hazard of theologians is to become so engrossed in the development of systematic models of understanding that God becomes an abstract intellectual formulation they discuss and write about instead of a living person they love on bended knees. In the deepest sense, Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship that is born out of the Trinitarian love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, we just paused right here. That would be a common desire of most of us in this room. I don't want to just show up and learn more about him. I don't want to just know how all this biblical theology fits together so that I can wage a good debate. I want to know him. And that's the other lie we've been told to believe, that those who know most intellectually walk the closest with God. And folks, that's not true. Now, it may be true, but it's not overall true based upon that fact. There are some who have a very basic, a very, you would call it, mean or simple knowledge of God who are walking with Him experientially and know Him. We want to know God. There's a growing search for meaning and purpose and significance among followers of Christ. We are weary of the American dream. We are worn out and irritable of living for things that are no bigger than ourselves. And I do believe the generation following us and watching us wants to live for something bigger, something more meaningful, something more meaningful than a cult of comfort or a fortress of privacy. And finally, there's a growing awareness and movement towards spiritual disciplines, accountability, and community. Real relationships, not just grazing the surface of one another at a planned time at a religious location, but real relationships that hold us accountable, love us unconditionally, and exhort us, as Paul did in Philippians 3. He says, I press on to make it my own. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body and keep it under control. He also says, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So that brings us all those, because these passages have already touched on what we're talking about this morning, that brings us to the real first big question, what does sanctification mean? Sanctification is a theological word typically used as an abbreviation or a shorthand for Christian living. But if you step back and you let the scripture define that word, it's not simply about Christian living. The verb to sanctify may mean two different things. Now, track with me because we're going to get involved in a little little detail. Um, The first one is when we sanctify something, we consecrate it or set it apart for sacred use or purpose. Days can be set apart. Okay, God sanctifies the seventh day in Genesis 2. People can be set apart. Moses and the people set apart the priests in Exodus 28. Places can be set apart. 
I mean out in the wilderness and a bush starts to burn and Moses has to remove his sandals. Why? Because the ground on which he stood was what? Holy. It was set apart because the presence of God was there. Things can be set apart. The tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. Sweater vests can be set apart. Let me explain. If, if I only ever, and this is not true, but if I only ever wore this blue sweater vest when I gathered to preach God's Word, in my mind, and I don't want to use it for common usage. Now, already my application is skewed a bit. But for sake of illustration, I mean, I go home and I hang it up in its own place, and I only ever wear it on Sunday morning. I have in this sense, in, in a real way, not a biblical way, but... It is the way in which the term is used. I have set it apart for consecrated use. And you'll see that use actually in the Old Testament, not with sweater vests, but with other things, utensils and places. And So anytime you read about this sanctify, you're reading about holiness, something that is set apart. The verb sanctify can also mean to purify or make holy. So where one thing is simply set apart, right? In Matthew 6, Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray. We are to pray that God's name is set apart, right? Hallowed be your name. It's not that God's name needs to become holy. It is holy. That's the first meaning. It is set apart for that purpose. But the second one actually means to become holy. Jesus prays. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Be setting them apart. Hebrews 13.12 So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. So these are people that were not holy. These were people that were in the realm of sin. They were enemies to God. The payment they get for being a sinner is death. But Jesus Christ, through His blood, sanctifies them. He sets them aside as holy. Holiness is not simply the absence of sin. God was holy even before sin entered the world. He is called holy. Holiness is the way God is. For God to say God is holy, God does not conform to a standard. God is that standard. We might even use the word later on in godliness. It is like God. Okay, so it is holy. The root meaning of the Old Testament word for holy, where the whole the biblical idea starts, is being separate. Or we would say different and unique. So even before sin entered the world, even when Adam and Eve were in the, in the Garden of Eden... Before Genesis chapter 3, they were without what? They were without sin. But were they like God? Well, they image Him, right? They image Him. But what does Scripture clearly teach? There is none like Him. I mean, even these, these, these angels, sinless angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. Well, what do they mean by that term? He is completely unique, set apart from everything else, even set apart and unique from His own sinless creation. When you hear the word sanctify, 
You're actually talking about a form of the word holiness. In Christian theology, however, the term sanctification is used most often to describe the setting apart or the making holy of believing people, Christians. So, to make it a touch more complicated, sanctification is used in two different ways in the New Testament. And we're going to look at this. Actually, let me have you turn uh, to Hebrews 10. How did you turn to Romans 6? We're going to double back and hit that. Um, but I want you to see these two, the two ways in which sanctification is used side by side, the two different ways in which it is used. So when the New Testament talks about our sanctification, it is either talking about the condition of our being holy, we are holy, or it is talking about the process of us becoming holy. Can you, can you feel the tension already? So if I'm holy... Why do I need to what? Become holy. And now you have six blind men trying to feel one part of the elephant and each arguing strongly their own opinions and though each was partly right, they were all in the wrong. Okay, so we're going to step back and we're going to look at this doctrine, hopefully not, comp- not, not, not exhaustively, but enough for us to be able to say that's what God's Word teaches. Sanctification is about being holy and becoming holy. Look at Hebrews 10.10. It's the clearest place to see both of these in one chapter. Hebrews 10.10 says, By that will, God's will, we have been, what? Sanctified. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So there is a real sense in which every believer in here this morning has already been what? You have, past tense, you have been sanctified. Okay, you are holy. You are set apart. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 14. Four verses later we read, I'm going to pick up in the middle of the verse, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You have been sanctified. You are being sanctified. Okay, here's the difference. Definitive sanctification is the status of holiness that we receive simultaneous with conversion and justification. So when God declares you in in legal terms, He legally declares you as righteous as Jesus Christ. Can you add to that? Absolutely not. So he imputes to you his righteousness. He takes from you your sin. And when the Father looks at you, he sees the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's your hope this morning. No matter what you did, thought yesterday, if you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ, he looks down and he sees the righteousness, definitively, the holiness, if you would, of Jesus Christ. We have been sanctified. It's that sense that Paul says in Romans 6.11, consider yourselves dead to sin. Or in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. In Colossians 3.3, you have died. The progressive aspect, so we, we are holy, we are, it's something we are, but then we are becoming the progressive side of this, sees sanctification as 
incremental changes throughout all of life. We are increasingly set apart. Our, we can put it this way. Our actual life begins to align with our identity in Christ. Now, somebody just recently shared with me, I feel like I take one step forward and two steps back. And then two steps forward and one step back. Okay, how are we gaining ground? Okay, we're going to look at the Scriptures on that because that is what progressive sanctification, that's the experience of it, that's what it feels like. Paul in Romans 8 says, we are conformed to the image of His Son. Okay, Hebrews 10.14, we already looked at that. Those who are being sanctified. 2 Corinthians 7.1, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion. Do you hear that? So there is, a, there is a sense in which, yes, I am as righteous as Jesus Christ. But there is also a sense in which holiness, according to the New Testament writers, is not complete as we live out our union with Christ. That's why Paul's going to pray in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And why when Jesus is telling His believing followers, when He's teaching them how to pray, He says this on what appears to be a daily basis, forgive us our sins. So here's the big picture. When believers by grace through faith are legally declared righteous, we call that what? Okay, justification. At that moment, they are set apart as holy. It is definitive. And we call that what? Sanctification. Now, the Scriptures aren't going to help you and say definitive sanctification, but they are going to use tenses. Okay, so it's very important as we understand what God's Word says, to understand the grammar and the context. And then, at that point, we begin a process in which, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are incrementally transformed in every aspect of our being to the very likeness of Jesus Christ on this earth. And we call that what? Sanctification. Okay, do you see the confusion? And that is what we refer then to and what we see as we study the Scriptures as a progressive sanctification. And we continue to grow. This is what Peter says. We continue to grow in the grace, growing, maturing. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ until we, or, or we would say we press toward, we train ourselves, we're transformed from one degree to another as we behold the glory of the Lord and we do this until we see Him and are made like Him at His appearing and we call that what? Glorification. Okay? Justification, sanctification, definitive, sanctification, progressive, glorification. And that leads us to Romans chapter 6. And we're just going to touch on this this morning and in two weeks we're going to develop this further. While you're turning there, let me read to you what Paul says in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, but he's, on, he's where? When he's writing that. He's not, he's not only on earth, he's in prison. Okay, but his citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like 
his glorious body, glorification, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Sanctification, then, is a journey that progresses through faith and obedience based upon a present relationship. So it's a journey with Christ, not a journey to Christ. And this is going to help, hopefully, be a shift in our thinking so that what we do is not motivated by fear of whether God accepts me or not. Or fear today of whether God has displayed His favor upon me or not. And we need to hear this. God has already accepted you in Christ. You can't add to that. God has already displayed and shown and lavished His favor upon you in Jesus Christ. You can't add to that. So then what's the purpose of holy living? Well, it's not to add more holiness to the work of Christ. That's impossible. Well, then what's the purpose? Well, it's not the duty of drudgery and all my friends get to have a great time and look at my family. I mean, we don't get to do anything. Absolutely not. But when you start to understand that, that this is born out of a relationship, that you, your identity is not in what you do. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. And you live out from that identity. You live out from that union with Christ. You can do so with gratitude and compelled by grace. You do that because you have been delivered from the realm of darkness and transformed and transferred into the kingdom of light. You're not doing it to try to gain those things. You're doing it because they've already been gifted to you. This will make a huge difference in how you live. And all of a sudden it makes our little checklists seem very impotent and sterile. Colossians is going to address that. Don't, don't touch, don't taste. I mean, these have no power over the sinful passions of your flesh. Romans 5, I mean, we're not going to look there, but Adam, whose sin brought death to all human beings, no longer represents us. Christ does. And His righteousness, His keeping of the law, His death on the cross, wins for all who belong to Him eternal life. That's the basic argument of Romans 5. And if you fully grasp Paul's argument in Romans 5, that, that Adam no longer represents you, you have been transferred, there's been a domain transfer, you have been in this world dominated by a master, sin, and, and that life under that master will lead you to death. And when you get this, that Adam no longer represents you, but now Jesus Christ represents you. And when you get that argument in Romans 5, that you have one who has already kept the law perfectly for you. You have one who has already offered himself as a sacrifice for you. By faith. Alone. His grace, through faith. And that you can add nothing to that when you finally realize that argument you're going to say then what Paul has to respond to in Romans 6, verse 1. Because I want you to look at Romans 5, verse 20. Paul just says, 
Where sin increased, grace abounded more. Okay, so you sin, 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 grace overabounds. You sin Saturday night, you sin, 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 grace overabounds. Look at Romans 6, verse 1. Well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And I'm going to say, unless you've ever had to grapple with that question, you haven't fully realized the grace of God yet. Because when you start to get it, it releases you from the law, from the realm of darkness, and you're actually going to ask, man, grace is so amazing. I mean, then why don't we just keep sinning so that grace can overabound? Because, Paul, that's, that's exactly what you just said. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Look at verse 2. And Paul's going to know. He's been preaching the gospel for many years. He's going to know that people are going to reach this false conclusion. So he's going to say, in some of the strongest terms possible, by no means. How can we who, what? Died, past tense, to sin, plural or singular, singular, how can we then still live in it? And by the way, can Christians still try that? Can you try to live a life of anger? Can you try, as a believer, I'm just asking, can you live a life of unreconciled relationships, a life of jealousy, a life saturated by lust, a life overcome by greed and envy. I mean, can a Christian still be tripped up and live like that? Do you, let me put it this way, do you have the freedom this afternoon to go out and try to find satisfaction in sin? very quiet right now. And I'm going to say yes. But it is an unenviable freedom. And it's actually not freedom at all. You have walked back into a jail cell that has already been opened for you and you have been delivered from. How can we do it? Because we've already died with him. How can we still live in it, present tense? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? That's exactly what this picture that Emma and Andrew preached to us this morning was about. Their union, when they trusted Him at the moment of salvation, at that point of conversion, they died with Him. They were buried. But it doesn't stop there. They were also what? Raised to new life in Him. Do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I just want to notice three things about this text. First, Paul speaks of dying to sin. Singular, not sins, plural. That, that, that mirrors the pattern in Romans 5 through 8, where Paul uses the word sin, singular, 22 times. Paul's focus then is not on the various sins we commit, but the underlying fact, principle, domain 
of sin that we live in. Second, Paul refers repeatedly to the metaphor of freedom from slavery. You can see this in verse 7, verse 18, verse 22. He says, freed from sin. And then he says, we are no longer slaves to sin. He says that in verse 6, 17, and 20. This is a repeated metaphor. Freed from sin, slaves to sin. So death to sin must have something to do with freedom from the mastery or the lordship of it. Because at, at the point of salvation, you have confessed someone else as Lord. Who is that? And whoever does that, whoever confesses Jesus Christ as Lord is what? What's the word? Saved. Saved from what? Slaved from the evil mastery of another, a tyrant in a world dominated by him. And that's why Paul's going to say in Romans 6.14, look at verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. You say, but I've, but I've committed sins this week. Yes. But you have been delivered from the domain of sin. So you're actually acting out of alignment with your identity in your union. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Third, what's interesting, if you look at verse 10, Christ also is said to have died to sin. Now this is where the singular and the plural become very important. Because Christ was sinless. He committed no sin. So this has to be an experience that Christ shares with us. And since He was never a sinner since there were no sins in his life, this has to be referring to something else. And what you'll see here is Christ in humility came down to this earth that is dominated by the prince and the power of darkness. He's called the prince and the power of this world. And he comes down on another master's turf. And as our teens noticed on Wednesday... He has a direct confrontation with the devil in the wilderness. Now, as the second, the last Adam, he confronts the devil as Adam and Eve did in the garden. But now, not in paradise, now in wilderness. Now, not in plenty. He does so now in hunger. And he defeats him as the son of man. That's the, that's the exact phrase he uses. And he is victorious. He's come down to another master's domain and he defeats him on his own turf. And then Christ is raised to a new life. And through that resurrection, he was delivered from what? Not sins, but what? This world, this domain of sin. And he is the first fruits. He's the first of his kind. So that those of us who are in union with him not only die with Him, not only are buried with Him, I mean, wouldn't that be a problem if they were still under the water? Right? I joked around with Emma that I hold people under for a second for every year they are in age. And her eyes got real big. Well, that's, that's not a whole lot for a 12-year-old, but when you start creeping up to some of our ages, that's problematic. But here's the good news. 
In that picture, they go down and what? They're raised to what? I mean, it happens spiritually at conversion, but the picture is they're raised out from the grave and they're raised to newness of life. So now Paul teaches this. We have both the potential and the responsibility to, Romans 6, walk in newness of life. Here's Paul's point. We have been set free from the domination of sin, so how can we keep living as though sin is still in control? Some of you are in union with Christ. It's your identity. But somehow you've forgotten it. As Jerry Bridges says, some of you have jumped on to the performance treadmill. And you're exhausted. And you're going nowhere. Some of us used to think sanctification meant having all the highest standards. And of course, subtly reminding other people that we're up here above you and we're willing to lead you to the higher ground once you realize our holiness. That's not sanctification at all. Look at verse 13, Romans 6. Knowing these incredible truths, Paul is not claiming that Christians cannot sin, for his frequent appeals to avoid sin and not let sin reign over them would make no sense. Verse 13, do not present your members. It's it's this picture of an offering to a king. Who is your king now? Okay, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So stop living and presenting your body as an offering to another king who's been defeated in his realm, in his domain. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of unrighteousness. Verse 22. But now, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to what? Sanctification. And its end, eternal life. See, if we don't have a biblical understanding of our union with Christ, it will affect how we live for Him. Grace, gratitude, a willing heart, rather than law, performance, fear, and duty should compel us to live for Him. Sanctification is about living out this life in progressive steps together, allowing our life to fall in alignment with our identity. We're simply living out our union with Him. Does the old realm still exist? Weren't you reminded of that this morning? You're still living in a kingdom? So what's the purpose of choosing a holy life this morning? Living out a holy life this morning? Reading God's Word this morning? Praying? Applying the means of grace God has given to us? Allowing the Holy Spirit to prompt us and to lead us? What is the purpose? To add more holiness? No. It's to give greater glory to God and to reflect the One with whom we are in union with. And there's great joy in that. We will be addressing a lot more of these topics specifically. We're going to be going to the primary texts that address sanctification, the progressive aspect of being set apart more and more 
Um, you're going to have a lot of questions after this. Well, how is that done? And um, it doesn't still include things like Bible reading and, and prayer and fasting. And it absolutely does. How do, you, how do you then kind of bring that all together with the fact that we're already holy, definitively, in Christ? Okay? Scripture will answer that. This week, I want you to rejoice and celebrate in your union with an identity in Jesus Christ and to live out from that union that you have already been gifted with by grace, to live out with joy and gratitude and be compelled by grace in everything you do rather than living over in this realm and being dominated by fear and being dominated by sins because you no longer live in the realm of sin but in the realm of His dear 